Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. Hey, it's Guy here, and you're listening to an audio broadcast of Market Call. That's MKT Call. It's a video series I do with Dan Nathan every Monday through Thursday, live at 1 p.m. Eastern. We break down the big market-moving headlines and offer trade ideas. Each week, we are joined by Carter Worth of Worth Charting and Liz Young from SoFi for their investment analysis. So check it out. And if you like it, follow at Market Call on Twitter and subscribe to Risk Reversal Media on YouTube so you never miss an episode. All right, welcome here to Market Call. That's MKT Call. I am Dan Nathan. I am joined by the illustrious Danny Moses. Danny Moses is the podcast partner of mine and Guy Adami's On The Tape podcast. That drops every Friday morning in your podcast store. So check it out. But again, this is Market Call. Just so you guys know, I did talk to Guy Adami this morning. He is in Sicily. He does miss you. And he had one word for some of our friends toggle okay all right we're gonna later be joined by a guy that is kind of hit finance twitter by storm he's called alf but we like to refer to him as alf pecatiello um he writes the macro compass and he is a brilliant macro mind so uh stick around alf is going to be joining us in just a few minutes today's market call is brought to you by cme group where risk meets opportunity and of course our data partners fact set uh and we are powered by open exchange so thank you guys for all being here danny moses this is it baby the moment of truth is is it really the moment of truth okay so cme fed funds tracker pricing you know about an 80 percent chance of a 75 basis point hike tomorrow when they come out with a federal open uh, market committee comes out with their decision it would be this third such 75 basis point hike in so many meetings here talk to us a little bit about that 20 percent chance that maybe they do a full percentage point well we'll, we'll be up to 300 basis points or three percent total raises since they began this back in the spring What's really interesting to me is now when I look, I hadn't looked in about a week. Um, Fed fund futures now pricing in four and a quarter. I mean, so they're pricing in on top of this 75 basis points, Dan, another 1.25% by the Fed to year end. I mean, more than 50% chance of that. And if that's true, the stock market has no chance. And I don't think that's going to be true because I think I do believe actually they're going to be done after this raise. If it's 1%, they're definitely done. If it's 75 basis points, I think they'll jawbone a little bit. But again, I'm more concerned with looking past that and the obsession with the Fed and every data point, inflation data point. We've traded in ranges of 10 to 15% on the market based upon one CPI print or PPI print or retail sales. Meanwhile, behind the scenes, earnings are coming down for companies. And just looking at the PE multiples of what they could contract to, we can talk about that later. But that is much more concerning to me. And then lastly, I know we'll get into this with ALF, is that the global rates in general, it's not just us, it's everywhere. Yeah. So we've talked about this before. So I'm, I'm looking at a lot of things here, Dan, but 
we're going to quickly shift, I think, from the macro back towards the micro again. And that scares me a little bit. Well, it's interesting that, you know, after this meeting tomorrow is completed, there's not another meeting until November. And when you think about going to the micro, what's going to happen in October, we're going to have Q3 earnings. And it really is going to focus um, a lot on what companies' guidance are and, and the sort of visibility they have. And depending upon where rates go with the absence of a Fed meeting, it's also going to weigh on valuations. But let's quickly talk about this 10-year U.S. Treasury yield. You see it's breaking out, Danny. Um, and so here, we're at levels that we haven't seen in the 10-year in over um, a decade here. What is today's action in yields higher telling you about market participants and how they're positioning? I mean, it seems kind of obvious. I'm leading you a little bit, but it's kind of funny that we get the breakout today as the meeting starts. Yeah, I want to say one other thing. So we do get, you don't have to value it or not, but we do get a dot plot every quarter. We're getting a dot plot tomorrow also. So we're going to see where the Fed and all their wisdom believes growth is going to be and all those yeah. things. So how they marry all that together. I just wanted to add that. I mean, listen, you are now having kind of a, what I believe is the kind of the blow off top here in, in the long end of the curve, so to speak. We are now, if you look, I mean, I don't think it's a coincidence that we're back to the levels when QE one and two were kind of beginning and ending, right? We're hitting those levels now, what we're doing. The two-year yield, just to bring it back, is obviously more impacted by short-term what the Fed is going to do. And they're now projecting and matching up where Fed fund futures have started to go. But I think this is a kind of a global kind of sell-off in, in, in bonds of what we're seeing. And the, the higher that it goes, it feeds on itself because then it becomes a situation where what are the ability for these global banks to finance themselves, global yeah. sovereign wealth um, countries to finance themselves over time. And so we're kind of re-rating, again, not to preview what Alf's going to talk about. I know that's what he tweets about a lot, is that exact type stuff, the risk inherent there. So yeah. Dan, this is just, I think, just a kind of kitchen sink situation right now. I believe we'll talk about it. I think it's a buying opportunity on the long. All right. Well, let's let, let, let's talk about that because you said you think it's a blow off. So if we want to look at the inverse of the yields, if you look at the TLT, that's the ETF that tracks the 20 year U.S. Treasury bond. You see this thing. It's kind of fallen off the bottom right side of the chart. This is a five year uh, chart going back to, you know, 2017 or so. Um, thoughts here on how to play this. I mean, you you know, we talked about it with Carter yesterday because he kind of likes playing it for a bounce here. Um, you know, as far as vol and the ETF and the options, it's, it's relatively cheap relative to a lot of other risk assets. So calls, call spreads. Are you a, a buyer of the TLT here? If you're not a buyer of the TLT here, then you're a seller of everything. What do I mean yeah. by that? If, if the TLT continues to trade off a cliff, and as you mentioned, it moves inversely to 10-year yields, if 10-year yields, I realize they've been to 5 or 6% before. That's not a new thing. But if they go here in a straight line, we're going to have a massive problem on our hands as it relates to the equity markets and how to value them from a risk premium perspective. So I'm a sucker for charts like this. You know, when everybody yeah. hates something, I tend to like it. I do think we are set up for a bounce. I just don't see how the data that we're seeing from companies and inflation in general is moving down, you know, moving lower, that we're all not on the same page, that we're kind of seeing the peak of inflation and I might mind you the peak in earnings. And with those two combined, I don't think this, I don't think our economy can survive with rates much higher than this. And when I say survive, that's a little dramatic, but you talk to get in the four and a half, five percent range to finance. We've already seen the impact on housing. We've seen the impact on, on bonds. We've seen the impact, yeah. you know, corporate borrowings. And so I just think it becomes self-fulfilling that this has to be a buy here. So 
All right. Well, here, here's somebody, uh, Noriel Rabini. You know him. You love him. Um, he was quoted uh, earlier this morning saying he sees stocks sinking 40% in the U.S. in a long, ugly recession. Dan Loeb, hedge fund uh, extraordinaire, billionaire, third point, says echoes of 2009 near the market bottom from my friend. I think he's being sarcastic there at Noriel, who made a similar prescient call a few days after the market bottomed here. What do you make of that, that little exchange? Well, I was, I'm a big fan of Noriel. I mean, we used him a lot back in the financial crisis. He would come into the office, Turkey disaster, Italy disaster, France disaster, Germany disaster, <laughs> disaster, disaster, disaster. So he gets carried away. But listen, this guy's seen a lot of cycles. And, and, yeah. and so he knows it's, you know, it, it seems like it's easy to pile on here on the bear trade, but people should listen. He's not talking his book, so to speak. He's talking what yeah. he sees happening in the macro. So listen, everybody innately or wants to be optimistic and bullish. I mean, that's the, that's how we are, right? That's how we're something you want to see the bright, uh, the you know, the the um, positive in things. I just yeah. don't see how we're going to get through this one in a soft landing and two without a lot more volatility to come between now and when the realization of kind of the Fed has finally finished its job here. So you know, yeah. I can see both sides, but I do value Noriel. So. All right. Well, there you go. Um, okay. I just do think it's interesting that Dan Loeb, who probably is a bit of a contrarian also in his investing, um, you know, taking taking a shot there at Noriel. I guess he's an easy target at this point. He's got one pitch. Um, let's look at the S&P 500 because you said just something before lights out if yields are, you know, or you said the economy can't make it in this environment. It's going to be lights out for stocks if we see yields up at that four and a quarter um, Fed funds, what, what the Fed funds futures are targeting here. You look at this chart. Um, you know, again, it's a series of lower highs. We saw what happened from the June lows. We had a couple bounces. We had a little bit of an uptrend there. We just broke it um, on Friday here. Pretty important technical break here. And I think it's probably something where it's going to be a hard trade. Like, you know, if the lower we go today into tomorrow's announcement is the more likely we probably get an initial snapback. But again, based on some of the other things we're going to talk about, it really does feel like you sell rallies here. The charts are helpful, you know, in, in, until a point. Because right now, I mean, there's a lot of room back up to that downtrend, which is like 41.50 or so. But thoughts on the S&P 500, at least from a technical perspective right here, Danny? Yeah, I think you just nailed it. I think you could see a huge rally into what I believe will be the acknowledgement by the Fed that things are slowing. They can't not acknowledge it, right, that they're seeing signs of slowing. They're going to try to maintain some type some type of credibility and still say we still believe inflation is a problem, et cetera. So I think you'll get the excuse to trade higher. But I actually believe that's why we're not lower now. So I think we were already past this point. The markets will be lower from here. Again, there's going to be bargains. There'll be single stocks to own and so forth. But just looking at that chart, I think you could touch. I think you could see a, a 200 point range tomorrow in the S&P. If you want to get yeah. really crazy, you could see up 100, down 100 type situation. But again, Looking beyond that, how you're positioned, I pay attention to single names tomorrow on exactly making a list of the things that you want to sell if you get a little pop and the things that you want to buy if you get a big type of drawdown. So yeah. I, I think that chart says it all, Dan, that nobody knows. All right. Well, well here, here's one chart. This is the chart of, of the gold futures here, Danny. We've talked about this a little bit. And, and listen, people who are trading gold right now, they kind of believe that the back has broken of inflation because there's no way this thing is making, you know, one and a half year lows, you know, down considerably from those highs just made earlier this year. If, if, if you believe that, that inflation is going to be, you know, a rampant problem for the balance of this year. Talk to me a little bit about this, this chart, because again, that's a really important technical level. And there's not a whole heck of a lot of support. Uh, I don't know, maybe for another, you know, hundred points in the futures here. 
I mean, on a relative basis, I guess it's been fine. <laughs> on an absolute basis, it hasn't done what it's supposed to do to your point, Dan. It's supposed to work in an inflationary environment. A lot of cross currents here for gold. I think you're seeing demand for the use of the actual industrial use of gold go down in China and India and the like. Um, and I think you're seeing certain global central banks that are forced to sell some of this, you know, for yeah. dollars, so to speak. So, and then obviously the strong dollar has an impact. All that being said, if you are positive on the equity markets, you have to believe at this point that the Fed is basically almost done, right? Or that they're going to turn a little yeah. bit or yeah. make that pivot. If that happens, it's hard for me to see gold not working. Again, sucker for a chart like this as well. I'm still there. I think people that think they're going to buy gold when the time comes are going to miss it. That's what this market has been. Max Payne everywhere. Long side, short side, timing wise, you never get a chance. So I'll take my chances of being long gold here. I know that chart could certainly pick a direction, but I'm a buyer on any weakness and I would own it into the Fed tomorrow. And if you told me that the S&P is going to be up two to three percent, I say gold's up five percent tomorrow. So, wow, I would take the other side of that, to be honest with you. I think if the S&P is up two to three percent, I think gold's down two to three percent. But what, that's what Maybe makes wait, the market we'll save that for another day. Dan. All right. We'll say that. Right, listen, let's stick with the macro here. We got a bunch of stuff on the stock market that will hit. Um, but I really want to bring um, Alf in right now. So as I said before, uh, uh, Alf is the um, he's the author of the macro compass. He is a great follow on Twitter here, people. And I think you can see um, up on the board right there. He is at macro Alf. Alf, thanks for joining us, man. We really appreciate it. Danny and I and Guy, we are big fans of your work. And, and I just got to, we want to introduce you. You have a huge following on Twitter. So I'm assuming that a lot of people who watch us, listen to us, they know who you are here a little bit. But tell us a little bit about, you just came on to the FinTwit stage a little bit. You're taking it by storm. You have a huge following. You're, I think I read, I don't even know how many followers you have on the Macro Compass, your um, your newsletter. Where'd you come from, buddy? And then it's a pleasure to be here on uh, MKT. Thank you for inviting me and thanks, thanks. for the kind words. Of course. Uh, I came from the boring European banking industry, <laughs> like that. So I was running money for uh, ING. It's a large European bank, but it's a global bank, actually. It's uh, in the US and Australia as well. And I did that until December 2021. Um, and uh, basically, I grew tired of effectively, you know, running Monday and making money for a bank, but not being able because of compliance issues to actually share the knowledge I've accumulated and was lucky enough to accumulate with the market experience with people. And that's what I wanted to do at the end of the day. So I decided it was about time to take the leap of faith and give it a try, see what happens. And Twitter, but also the Macro Compass, especially the newsletter, have rewarded me big times. And I'm not sure what exactly is resonating with old people, but uh, I'm happy if I'm uh, helping somebody to enhance their market IQ, let's say. Well, well, you certainly have with us. And I, and I will say this. I mean, you, you, the, how succinct you are about markets, there's really not a lot of bent. It doesn't seem like that you are kind of having an axe to grind. You're not talking your book. You're really kind of expressing a lot of views through you know, the lens in which you operated at that large bank and trading those, um, those risk assets. So we really appreciate it. And it's really our pleasure to have you here. Let, let's talk a little bit about this environment we're, that we're in. And, and I really would love to hear you and Danny go back and forth a little bit about this, but talk to us about the setup into this meeting. And, you know, Danny just said something that, again, I think is really important. Maybe in the next week or so, we can stop obsessing over every little data point that we think the Fed might be interpreting. Talk to us a little bit about your view right now into this meeting, what you think is going to happen. Yeah. So the big picture, guys, from my perspective, is that I look at macro and asset classes through the lens of 
two axes. Uh, one is what's going on in the real economy and in earnings, and the other one is what's going on in the monetary policy stance, let's say, which are also the driver of the macro compass on the two axes, right? The x-axis and the y-axis. So when I look at that, I see all the forward-looking macro indicators and top of all my global macro credit impulse, so the G5 credit impulse, which measures the pace of money being thrown at us, the private sector, the real economy. I saw that slowing down. I see all the other forward-looking macro indicators slowing down pretty aggressively. And that's one lens to look at it. The global economy is slowing down pretty hard, and it showed already signs of slowing down in uh, basically the second half of last year already. And it's now unfolding, and the energy crisis is making it more complicated in places like Europe or the UK, for instance. The other thing I see is that um, never like today, I have experienced central bankers being so committed in tightening financial conditions. It's never been the case. They have in 2018 there was a balance where they went they want to try to tighten financial conditions to slow down demand a little bit. In 2013-14, there was a similar approach, but today it's completely different. It's mission number one, two, three, four, and five is to bring down inflation, killing demand. And there was a lot of criticism at the beginning of the year that you know they, they're gonna try and kill demand, although demand is responsible only for a small portion of inflation. That criticism was never close to me because I, I had the luxury of speaking to these policymakers and central bankers when I was running money. You realize that their incentive scheme is really skewed towards preserving credibility. And it doesn't matter at some point if they have one big hammer that can just hit everything as long as they achieve their objective, which is to anchor inflation expectations and bring the damn inflation down. There, there is no room for nuance at some point where inflation starts going at 5 or 6%. So they are tightening financial conditions by basically eating every single component of the financial condition index. So it was the turn of the dollar, then it was the turn of credit spreads at some point, then equity valuations, and now it's real rates. If you see what's going on in, in real rates across the curve, from the front end all the way to the back end, and the pace of change in these increasing real yields, it's really, really large. And that is the second way I tend to look at, at the macro today, the combination of a slowing economic growth and central banks ultra committed in tightening financial conditions makes it for a very complicated environment for beta return harvesting, which has been the name of the game between basically 2014 and 2020. So, well, if people have a short memory or people that lived through it like you and I and, and Dan, 2008, 9, 10, 11, remember, started here in the US, worked its way into Europe, and I think people forget, you know, the, the banks would have gone, the banks in Europe did go off a cliff, but sovereign would have gone off a cliff as well. But obviously we came in, global central banks came in and started buying paper. Well, there's two sides to this, right? There's the tightening financial conditions, and then there's lack of QE and or the case of US QT, which is beginning. And I think people don't understand how these countries like Italy, who 10-year yields are now ballooning. It's not. It, I don't. It's not lost some of the irony that Draghi is stepping down when he was just print guy. I was in Europe and he leaves, leaves, leaves his position in Italy. So talk a little bit about the understanding of kind of this normalization of rates because I think we have a short memory to not that we forget that what was happening in Europe in 11, 12, 13, 14, and how this is just quickly to your point unwinding here. So maybe comment on that if you don't mind. Make a distinction, Danny, and thanks for the good question between the private and the public sector. So people tend to always obsess about government debt to GDP, but I think they're actually missing the big picture, which is that the private sector is much more in trouble from a systematic perspective because 
corporates, households can't print money to refinance their liabilities. We can't. If, if you want to refinance your mortgage, the only way you have to, if you have double interest rates compared to before the pandemic, is to have a bigger salary or to sacrifice more of your disposable income to, into interest payments. And the same goes for corporates, right? And if I look at the US, for instance, I see about $40 trillion of private debt sitting on corporate's balance sheet. Then when measured against asset value, seems okay because those asset prices were inflated. So looking at stuff like net debt or liabilities against assets make the picture look very good. But looking at liabilities of the private sector, wow, try to refinance all of those at corporate yields, which are more than double they were before the pandemic. And same goes for mortgage rates. So that's the first angle. And I think the private sector is pretty much in trouble when it comes to refinancing across the board. You see that on junk, uh, junk corporate bond issuance this year, which is something I track, it's the lowest year to date on record since 2008. There is basically no junk corporate that can afford refinancing their business model at today's yields, which have skyrocketed as a combination of risk-free rates for treasury yields that have gone up and credit spreads that have widened. I can make the same case for households and mortgages who can afford mortgage payments, which are more basically 70% higher than they were before the pandemic buying the median house today because median house prices have gone up and mortgage rates have gone up at the same time. The public sector, yeah, in Europe especially, Danny, to answer your question and talking about Italy. So the situation is pretty simple. The architecture of the Eurozone is pretty poor by definition because you have one monetary policy authority for 19 different jurisdictions that need different monetary policy and different fiscal policy to thrive. So the, the, the architecture itself is very fragile. And every time you have an exogenous shock of some sorts, there is always a release valve in such an architecture. And so far, the release valve for the external energy shock has been the euro until now. And the euro has been the release valve because, well, terms of trade are terrible once energy imports more than double compared to they were they were before the pandemic. And clearly, central banks hiking cycle can do only this little when you measure euro against other jurisdictions whose central banks are also hiking, and when you have an exogenous shock you can't solve by raising interest rates, which is the energy yeah. import problem. That's yeah. so far. Now, so far, the, basically, the euro has been the release valve. The other obvious release valve is weak sovereigns, weak credits, let's say. And you normally wouldn't call a sovereign a credit in the first place, but in Europe, you have to. You have to because Italy does not have the power, the fiscal power, to print money at its own will to refinance its liability, nor has a domestic central bank that would support it unilaterally if needed. So when basically weak sovereigns, weak credits in Europe are a rates product, as long as things are fine, they become yeah. a credit when things are not fine. And that's what's about to happen right now. By the way, don't forget Italian elections, which are this weekend, and good luck with that. Yeah. Well, let's bring it back over here for a sec, Alf, because, you know, um, a lot of our listeners, a lot of our viewers are very focused on, obviously, the U.S. stock market. And, uh, you know, Danny is really and, and it's great to get your perspective, because, again, you know, you're talking about events outside the U.S. and there's stuff that's been going on that have been affecting the dollar, have been affecting commodities, have been affecting um, rates and, and the differentials and that sort of thing. But, you know, what, what do you think the breaking point here is in the U.S., at least for when I think about the, the macro landscape. I think of stocks that are down, but not down nearly as much as they were a few months ago. Valuations are still high. Rates are the highest that they've been in a very long time. 
you know, inflation, um, you know, measured by CPI and other measures at, you know, 30, 40 year highs, right? What do you, what do you think the breaking point here is? And is there a potential for a, a soft landing? Can this U.S. Federal Reserve kind of nail the landing? Um, because Danny just said Fed fund futures now are still pricing about four and a quarter, right? By the end of the year, which seems insane. We haven't seen that in two decades. The answer is no, they can't nail it. It's very simple. You cannot raise borrowing costs this much, this quick, and you cannot have this pace of change in financial conditions. And on top of it now, the second dimension is keeping monetary policy so tight for so long as the Federal Reserve and the euro dollar market are pricing in, in an over-leveraged economy that has been structurally weakened by a pandemic. I'm sorry, but it doesn't square. And the fact that it doesn't square, it's visible as well, if you ask me in forward-looking macro indicators, and will be visible in earnings. Today, we got the first, the very first downward, uh, basically, adjustment to 2022 S&P EPS. Uh, they've been revised down. 2023 EPS are being revised down, earnings per share in the S&P 500. Yeah. This trend is only to accelerate, if you ask me. Now, when it comes to the bond market pricing then, which is my home turf, let's say, uh, the fixed income market. So there have been, there's been basically a twofold story so far. The first half of the year was all about the Fed trying to tell us that, hey, guys, we have an inflation problem. You can't price us hiking at neutral rate, whatever the estimate was, 2.5%. That doesn't make sense because to lower inflation, we need to be tighter than neutral. So please, could you trust us that we're going to really be serious about inflation can you price this then terminal rate all the way up to three, three and a half percent? That was basically the first leg of the Fed, of the Powell attempt at sounding serious about inflation. Okay, he got that. The moment he got that, one year forward Fed funds future were priced 80 basis point lower. So the market was like, yeah, yeah, you're going to get there and then you're going to cut because obviously you are not really serious about inflation. You're only trying to shock and awe the market basically, but you're going to be cutting. The second leg, which was really augmented with the Jackson Hole speech, was all about taking these one-year forward Fed funds, basically the Fed funds future price between, say, September 23 and March 24, and push them up. It was the higher for longer story, yeah. effectively, that the market didn't really want to buy at the very beginning, but the Jackson Hole speech was extremely strong. It was the shortest, most direct speech that I've ever heard in Jackson Hole, which is, by the way, not really a theater for this kind of strong monetary policy speech. It's more of, a, of an academic setup. So where he did it, how short he did it, how convincingly he did it, convinced the market to price that one higher. The third leg we're seeing right now is just the bond market. I love that because I, I used to be one of the guys taking risks in bonds in pretty large size. What we tend to do is, okay, now you're telling us you're very serious about inflation. Sure. Now we're going to challenge you to see how really we can push this pricing in the front end until you come out and you say you're uncomfortable with us pricing a terminal rate of four and a half, five percent because things are going too far. Now, the moment Powell comes out and challenges that view is basically loosening financial conditions. He's saying, no, 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 guys, that's too much. I'm not serious about inflation. I won't do that. So right now it's the bond market challenging Powell at the front end where the Federal Reserve has the ability to really follow up on bond market pricing if they want to. At the back end, you're seeing some weird stuff going on. Two, yeah. you know, two stands, five thirties, all these curves are as inverted as they can be. They will get more inverted if you ask me. The yeah. more the Fed tightens at the front end, the more damage it will do to long-term economic growth. Yeah, Alf, well, I got one last question here. Yeah. Sorry, it's one, one last question, Alf, just in terms of 
the U.S. So the argument to be bullish on U.S. equities is that it's the sexiest game in town globally. You know, forget about valuation for a second. But, you know, all these things that are going on, I don't think we really appreciate currencies and, and global bonds and all those things. And so there's going to be a point here where we have to start to recognize the impact that multinationals are going to feel, obviously, barring rates in Europe, purchasing power diminishing globally. Is it the U.S. dollar? And then and then I know we got up, but is it the U.S. dollar here that is the biggest focus of what you'll be watching as a sign for either more volatility to come or a little bit less? Well, Danny, uh, what you say is extremely smart. I, I always try to have a global lens. And the global lens this time brings me to Switzerland. You'd be like, what are you talking about? All right. So Switzerland between 2010 and 2020 has accumulated a trillion dollar in FX reserves. It's a trillion dollar. So a trillion dollar, which has been invested not only in bonds, but also in stocks. So the, basically, the Swiss National Bank became the biggest hedge fund in the world, if you wish. And they've bought as many Nasdaqs and SMBs as they can, right? But that's because they've been accumulating dollars to try and stem the Swiss franc from appreciating. So in a deflationary, disinflationary world, what you try to do if you have a very strong currency is to stop the currency going up. So you, you try to basically sell the currency and buy dollar assets with it or European assets with it, right? So that's what you try to do. And today, the Swiss National Bank, like many other external uh, jurisdictions, are trying to do exactly the opposite. The Swiss National Bank, if you ask me today, together with maybe um, companies in Japan, are looking at the exact opposite situation where they want their currency to actually appreciate, not depreciate. Because the more it depreciates, the more it pushes up local inflation, which they don't want because it's already higher than their targets. So you're having the opposite global uh, setup where instead of foreign foreigners buying and pushing uh, money into, Europe, into European and, and US assets, they're doing the opposite this time, right? So that's a change of scenery. That also has an impact on the dollar, obviously, but the dollar is, there is always a timing consistency when we talk about the dollar. So in a deleveraging episode that we are seeing right now, where global trades are slowing down, where leveraging is becoming basically impossible for many companies, where the biggest single asset class in the entire world, the Chinese real estate market, the $50 trillion market cap at the end of 2021, it's biggest in the US stock market, actually is deleveraging at a very fast pace. When you see this deleveraging, the dollar, which is the denominator of most things we trade with, most goods we exchange, most commodities we exchange, actually tends to get a bit. Tends to get a bit because companies have basically increased their dollar liabilities over the last 15 years. We have trillions in dollar-denominated debt from jurisdictions that have no access to dollars. If not for these trades, for this economic growth, for this global growth, they are in trouble, so there is a dash for dollars. So short-end, the deleveraging episodes pushes up the dollar. That's what we are seeing now. Long-term, there are other cross-currents like diversification of effect reserves out of treasuries and U.S. assets and European assets into gold. It's a slow grinding process that will take time, but there, are, there is always a timing consistency when you analyze the dollar. So short-term, we're going higher under a deleveraging Long term, we might want to reassess the situation because of these cross currents you're talking about. Yeah. Well, in the near term, I really feel like, and, and Danny and I are, are going to talk about this in a, in a couple minutes with some some single names. It, it's just going to wreak havoc on earnings. And you just kind of mentioned that too, Al, for U.S. multinationals, given their exposure overseas, and also given the weak demand that that uh, there's so much focus on the U.S. consumer when you think about China and and just the reverberations of their continued lockdowns and what's going on in Europe. So again, I think that's going to be a Q4 
story for U.S. multinationals. Listen, Alf, we really appreciate you joining us. We hope that you will come back. That's Alf Pecatillo. He is the author of The Macro Compass. You can find him on Twitter at MacroAlf. I suspect many of you already do. Alf, thanks a lot for joining us, bud. And then it's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Alf. Thanks. Thanks, bud. Um, okay, that was awesome, man. That guy, he is he is one smart guy. He's got a better Noriel accent than you do, uh, Danny, just so you know. Portugal, All right, l- l- let, yeah. let's, let, let's rip through some stuff here because um, I want to hit, he, he really, you know, I, I think the takeaway for the stock market was basically we are going to see earnings revisions. We've been talking about it on the tape, on market call for a very long time. You know, we had peak margins here um, in the U.S. last year. When I say peak, I mean literally all-time highs, and they basically started to kind of show some signs that they're coming down and, and again that's going to lead to earnings provisions danny you had a tweet thread yesterday you don't tweet often but when you do it's pretty darn good lots of positioning ahead of fed meeting on wednesday walmart gave the fed the heads up ahead of the july meeting and fedex just did the same for this meeting talk to me about this whole thread and why you thought about it and what you think comes next and we're going to hit some single names also after this and, and and i think there's other i think there's other companies who are kind of winking at this same sort of thought process yeah, it felt like Walmart back in July certainly did that for the sole purpose of the Fed seeing it. FedEx kind of feels the same, although it was about five days before, so maybe not exact. But either way, if the Fed's not paying attention to two of the largest U.S.-based companies out there, then they're not doing their job because, again, pull their head out of the sand. So to me, it's obvious. I don't need economic data points, as I just mentioned before. I'll take it from corporations that have traded through many, many cycles that see. And that was kind of, to me, FedEx throwing in the kitchen sink there. So that was that. Was that. Now, beyond that, which I just talked about when, the, when we started the show today, is that that's the stuff we need to start to focus on. The impact that rates have or the impact Global Center have on specific companies, because at the end of the day, that's what makes up the S&P 500. That's what you have to get right. You've got to not just get earnings trends right, but the the depth of the, of the earnings moves lower and yeah. potentially higher. So again, that's what I like to look at. The Fed stuff is just noise to me because the impact is being seen you know, yeah. Well, I, I mean, just again, here's two headlines we've been talking about for months and months, and, and, and maybe we were just early, and, and we know that we tend to be a bit early, but here's a, a headline today from Goldman Sachs. Shrinking margins could spell trouble for stock market returns. We know that. Uh, and then BlackRock saying earnings cuts are coming for stocks here. So again, I think that's uh, pretty interesting. We do see that expectations for margins tend to be up right now. The S&P 500, that's not happening. And just overnight, I mean, you saw what Ford did here, Danny. Talk to me a little bit about this. The stock is down more than 10% on a really weak guy. They're talking about production issues here. This is from Street Accounts. Um, just kind of reviewing this a little bit. And you see this one-year chart that we just overlaid that data on here, man. This is some nasty business here because if you back it down to the five-year, you know, you look at those June lows and you're just above 10 bucks. There's still a ways to go. And I guess the key point I just say here, Danny, is that companies like Ford and GM, you know, they're kind of eking some of this news out little by little here. But sooner or later, there's going to be some sort of kind of just just disastrous you know forward year guidance that's going to come out and it's going to reset the tables and if you're going to be responsible at least if you're going to continue to give guidance you probably want to just get the worst out of the way and reset the bar low enough where you can start beating again talk to me a little bit about that well it's amazing how certain auto companies are impacted by capex and heart you know problems with supply and others aren't we'll get to that another show but what's interesting is that you remember ford has a very large finance arm Right. Yeah. Ford finances people into their cars, right? They manage a 
credit book. Um, it's fine right now, but that is an issue that is a headwind, I think, that's going to come. So there's two things there, right? If you're a company that has a balance sheet like that, that provides credit, that hurts you both ways when the market turns and rates move higher, right? Because obviously cost of financing goes up, your credit turns a little bit down. So I'd have to go looking forward to how much money they've been making from the financing division, what the credit reserves look like. I'm sure they're, oh, I'm sure they're fine right now in terms of how much they have reserved. But Dan, it'll quickly shift from supply issues and how many cars you're selling to what does your credit look like? I mean, let's not forget that yeah. we bailed out the auto companies right back in 2008, nine, when all this stuff was happening the first time and credit was the main reason. It had nothing to do with supply shortages. So I haven't done enough bottom up work on those companies in particular. But again, it's common sense that these would be have some type of impact. And Dan, I'll say it again. Companies don't just pre-announce once when this yep. is this is a very secular thing. It's not cyclical to me in nature. So will they get through it? Yes. Are they going bankrupt? No. Be fine. But what is the value? Tell me what earnings are going to be in twenty three and twenty four, which is anyone's guess at this point. Yeah. Well, to your point, you know, last week we had the big Kahuna, we had FedEx. That was just a, a just a disaster. Then we had GE, and now we have Ford, and there's going to be many more in the next couple. Um, I, you know, probably days into the quarter end here and probably the days after the quarter. Another one I thought was kind of interesting. Again, you know, this is a, a combination of production issues and demand issues. I mean, you know, Nike was downgraded at Barclays. This is per street accounts. Um, look at this chart here. You know, this looks a lot like if you were watching yesterday, Carter had that um, that whole kind of chart, um, I, I guess, presentation of about a bunch of names that looked like about ready to kind of break those June lows and Maybe they hold and make double bottoms. His presumption is that they don't. There's too many of them that look the same. Look at this thing, that nice round number of 100. And then if you back this thing out five years and you look how important from the pre-pandemic highs to that kind of breakout level, um, in late 2020, you see that this $100 level is a really big level here. It's just worth keeping an eye on that. This is a company that I would not be surprised. They have a mulligan. They can go out there and say they're having production and demand issues. They're having issues with the dollar. A lot of their sales come from outside the U.S. Danny, do you agree with that? U.S. multinationals are really going to have a hard time because the dollar, which did come back a little bit earlier this month, seems to be right back near its highs. Yes, I think Nike's a perfect example. Great company incredible brand, not going anywhere will be around, but it's going to have its price. That chart doesn't look great. It could certainly go lower. That's the name you probably put on your list that you want to own, but it's still expensive, Dan, to your point. They're, they're giving you, you know, they're projecting, or at least the analysts are projecting that numbers are going to be coming down. So how do you, what kind of price earnings multiple do you put on a company like that? That's got a great franchise. We know their issues in Asia, right? We know global demand and you just touched on what I've been talking about is U.S. multinationals with the dollar strength it's been by just it's just math. They're going to have issues here. So there's many of quote charts that look like that. There's yeah. many other Nikes outlook. It doesn't mean they're not a great company. I think you just got to find the price. And again, this is how people make their money, right? Is trying to figure this this thing out. So yeah, not alone. So no, I agree with you. All right, last thing here. Here's a couple of tweets from a guy named Mike Zakari. Uh, Zakardi. He's a good follow on Twitter. I follow him. I get a lot of good data from him. This was interesting. This was from a couple of weeks ago. Um, the PE ratio, the S and P four ninety is fourteen point six. So he's basically backing out the top ten holdings in the S&P 500 that traded about 25 times current. Um, and then you back out the 490 and they are basically well in value territory. It's just those 10 that make up the highest percentage of the top 10, I think ever. And this is in this other tweet and they're nearly 30% of the weight 
of the index of 500 stocks. Again, it feels like the whole entire market, Danny, is waiting for these top stocks, these top four or five, just a break here. Here's Microsoft. I think this is probably one of the most important charts in the market. 240 is the level. It's down 1.5% today. It's trading right there. You see that level backed out going back a year you know I, I look at apple and i say it's still well above those june lows if this thing joins the party and starts to retest those june lows watch out below alphabet he high, highlighted yesterday um this one about to break and make new 52-week lows and then amazon had a huge bounce but again if that were to go back to the june lows danny thoughts on the concentration of those names and is this it is this all we're waiting for to happen because without these stocks i mean you know think about it there's just this market is just a mess if, if all four of those are making new 52-week lows. You just described the biggest problem in this market, which I've talked about for months, is active versus passive. Passive investing is what has caused that skew to occur. Money flowing into queues and spies and all these ETFs, it's become self-fulfilling that those names will be the highest weight, right? Over time, they'll grow over time. So to me, it's a stock, it's going to be a stock picker's market. It is a stock picker's market. You own those names because you feel safe in them because they're quality, but that's a great point that you bring up in a great chart. And that tells you that when the spy and when the cues, when all these things do sell off, there'll be names that are trading at nine to 10 times probably earnings that are just getting thrown in, right? They didn't get the benefit of all the flows on the way up and they're going to get hammered on the way down. And that's what that tells me, Dan. And everything's going to have its price and we're going to be okay. We're going to get through this. I'm just nervous that there's, <laughs> there's a big washout coming here that's going to present tremendous opportunity, to be frank. So- but that's what that tells me. Yeah, it does. All right, my man. Well, I appreciate that. That was a that was a lot of fun. We got to meet Al face to face. He is a um, a really bright guy, man, and a great follow on Twitter. So check out the Macro Compass. I've been reading it now for a while. As soon as I kind of came on to him, so um, that one's really interesting. Danny Moses, really appreciate you joining me on Market Call. We are going to be um, in face to face. We're going to be in person on Thursday with Stuart Sop of Current. We're going to break down what the Fed said and how we're positioning um, a little bit here. I'll just say this, as we've been talking, you know, earlier in the day, Apple was up almost 2% and everything else on my board was pretty much red, Danny. And this thing feels like it's about to go lower. I actually bought some weekly 155 puts in this thing. I paid about uh, $2.20. So I'm looking for this thing to go um, at least to 152.80 by Friday's close. That's how I'm trading the Apple here. I really feel like this thing could catch a steam, catch some steam to the downside. I'll just say one last point. And always, when I'm, especially when I'm trading short term, weekly um, directional um, options like this, I use a very hard mental stop of 50% of the premium that I paid. I do not want to see things like this go. Um, to zero. So that's my little trade of the day right there on Apple. Maybe I see 150 or a retest of those lows by the end of the week. So Danny, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. All right, buddy. I'll see you on Thursday. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks, everyone. All right. And again, thank you to CME Group, our sponsor here, uh, Open Exchange for powering us. And of course, thanks to FactSet for all those nifty charts and all that data and all the stuff from Street Accounts. So thanks again, FactSet. Thanks, CME. We will see you tomorrow. I will be back with Tan Saznov from Tasty Trade at one o'clock. And we also have Liz Young from SoFi is gonna be joining us. So check it out. This is gonna be the pre-Fedapalooza event market call. Thanks, bye.